This evening in your Bibles, we would invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3. You can find that in the Pew Bible on page 1367. After we read from Scripture, we'll also be reading from a confessional reference, the Belgic Confessional, uh, the Article 3. You can find that in your Forms and Prayer book, which also is in the Pew Rack, on page 154. A word of explanation of our use of the confessions. Uh, we as a Reformed Church believe that the three forms of unity, that is the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort, are faithful summaries of the teachings of Scripture. And so we receive them and also use them to guide us in our exposition of a topical matter uh, through the basic doctrines of Scripture. We want to read this evening from 2 Timothy 3. Before we begin reading, uh, just a word. Oftentimes people will survey the culture and what's going on in society and what's going on in the world, and they'll ask this question, even though perhaps they don't word it this way, but they'll ask, what in the world is going on? Uh, and maybe young people, you also hear individuals asking that question. What in the world is going on? Well, that presents us with another dilemma. Where do we go to evaluate and to try to understand what in the world is going on? Uh, many turn to social media or to news broadcast or news sources. But as Reformed Christians, we must always turn ultimately uh, and first to the Word of God. And as we read 2 Timothy 3, you'll notice that the inspired Word of God is indeed prophetic as it tells us what in the world is going on. And there ought to be a sense of comfort that our God knows exactly what is going on. All things continue to progress according to His eternal plan and His eternal purpose. History is not off the rails of divine sovereignty, but continues to run its course until all things are made new with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we read in 2 Timothy 3 as follows, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, 
And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thus far for this evening, our reading from the Word of God, we then turn to Article 3 of the Belgic Confession. We confess that this Word of God was not sent nor delivered by the will of men, but that holy men of God spoke, being moved by the Holy Spirit, as Peter says. Afterwards, our God, because of the special care He has for us in our salvation, commanded His servants, the prophets and apostles, to commit this revealed Word to writing. He Himself wrote with His own finger the two tables of the law. Therefore, we call such writings holy and divine Scriptures. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to begin this evening with an analogy, but before the analogy, also a confession. And my confession is is that I have never served in the military. I've never been on a battlefield. But the analogy is this. Uh, According to what I've read and seen perhaps portrayed in movies, there are times in an intense battle where the command is given to hold a certain position at all costs. To hold a certain line at all costs. And in essence, that means that the unit of the military that is given that command is to do all that they can do, even to the sacrifice of everything that they have and everything that they are, not to lose that key and pivotal position on the battlefield. And I would submit to you as a congregation this evening that the inspiration of the Holy Scripture is a hill that we must hold at all costs. This is a line in the cosmic battlefield of the forces of darkness against the kingdom of God that you and I, whether we be older members of the military of God's kingdom or whether we be younger members of the military of God's kingdom, this is a line that we must sacrifice all to hold. Our belief that in these Scriptures, in the written Word of God, in the 66 canonical books, beginning in our order with Genesis and concluding with the book of Revelation, that these and these alone are the inspired Scriptures of our God. Now I will state from the outset that that position, that belief, that confession, that conviction has been attacked, is being attacked, and will be attacked as long as there is history and time. Be forewarned, but don't be alarmed. Because the anvil, so to speak, as many have said, the anvil of the Word of God has broken many a man's hammer of perhaps higher reason, or perhaps higher criticism, or perhaps doubt or uncertainty. It began all the way back in the garden when Satan came to Eve and whispered in her ear that subtle lie, Hath God really said? And that was exactly the same tactic that Satan tried against our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Misquoting Scripture. And it has continued down into our current day as we'll consider this evening together. 
So for the glory of God and for the edification of His people, we turn our attention to this theme, our belief concerning inspiration. We want to unfold that theme by first of all, giving the description of inspiration, and then secondly, the need for inspiration, and then thirdly, the implications of inspiration. So our belief concerning inspiration. First of all, the description of inspiration. Secondly, the need for inspiration. And then thirdly, the implications of inspiration. So first of all, the description of inspiration. And tonight we want to set before you two truths about the description of inspiration, trying to answer the basic question, what exactly is inspiration? What is it that we profess to believe when we say that we believe the Bible is inspired? Well, notice first of all that we are speaking here of a verbal plenary inspiration and then also of an organic inspiration. So a verbal plenary inspiration is the first way in which the Christian church the Reformed Church, the church that takes the testimony of the Word of God seriously, verbal plenary inspiration is the first way we describe what exactly we mean. Or perhaps more precisely, what exactly God Himself means. Because you notice that we do not invent this Word, but rather it comes to us from Scripture itself, as we see in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration. And the basic Greek word there means to breathe out. So we believe that God, more precisely, although all of the persons of God are included in all of the works of God, but more specifically, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, exhaled or breathed out every single word that was contained in the original manuscripts of our Holy Bible. Every single word. The big words and the little words. The compact theological words and the small little prepositional phrases. The definite articles and the indefinite articles. Every word of Scripture has its ultimate origin not in the imagination of the human author, but rather in the person of the Holy Spirit. Not only every single word, but because heretics are always tricky and always come with their subtle statements, we also emphasize plenary inspiration, that all of the words in the original manuscripts, whether it be words found in a historical narrative, as you find in Genesis 1-11, through even the well, what Hebraeus called the, the Vav consecutive, the, and then this happened, and then that happened. Those words are breathed out by the Holy Spirit, as well as the theological discourses of the Apostle Paul when he speaks of justification and when he speaks of sanctification, uh, as well as the poetic uh, writings of David in the book of Psalms, including the imprecatory Psalms. We are convinced that every single word and all of the words in the original manuscripts of the Holy Scriptures, are inspired. And so to summarize it, we borrow a quote from the late P.Y.D. Young. And he writes in relationship to this third article of the Belgian Confession, we, and that is the Christian church, we confess therefore that the Bible, although written by men, we're not denying nor discrediting nor minimizing the human authorship that is also involved. We understand and we appreciate the role of Moses and of David, and of the prophets, 
and of the Gospel writers, and of Paul, and of the other authors. But we understand that ultimately the Bible owes its origin, authority, and reliability entirely to God. And that, beloved congregation, is the crux of the matter. That when we hold our Bibles, and when we read our Bibles, and when we listen to our Bibles, that we have this basic core conviction that we are dealing not merely with the words and thoughts and ideas of mere men, but that we are listening to the very words of God Himself. That's what we mean when we speak of a verbal plenary inspiration that came into existence by way of an organic inspiration as our Belgic Confession uh, states, we believe that holy men of God spoke being moved by the Holy Spirit and that God then had His servants commit this revealed Word to writing. So both in the original speaking and in the writing of the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit worked upon individual human authors and, and worked in accordance, you might say, with their human nature. Of course, overcoming any deficiencies that may have resulted as part of the sinful inclinations of such human authors. And so if you read your Bible, uh, you, you'll definitely notice, for example, that, that James writes somewhat differently than Paul does. And we have four accounts of the Gospel narrative. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And now liberal scholars love to find all sorts of differences between the four. And they have been continually frustrated in their attempts because all four give a clear testimony of the one way of the Gospel through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Matthew writes with Matthew's style. Given Matthew's specific purpose to write to the Jews, to proclaim to them that Jesus is the Messiah, that He has fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies. Luke writes to the Gentiles. And given his background and his training and his interest in the medical field, he has a special eye for, you might say, the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives us a little bit more detail into some of the symptoms of those that Christ cured and healed. So the personalities, you might say, of the human authors is not overridden by the work of the Holy Spirit. But this is not just that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John had some superb insight into what was going on. What flowed out of their pens, so to speak, was not just their superb insight, but were words that were given them directly by the Holy Spirit. You can think also of the prophets in the Old Testament when they spoke. They often began their prophetic oracles or their prophetical statements with a formula. And the formula, if you think of Jeremiah, for example, the formula of his pronouncements was not, I, Jeremiah, have considered the matter and this is what I think on the situation in which you find yourself in. That's not the way he began. He begins with a solemn but a simple, Thus saith the Lord. I apologize. Perhaps I don't apologize for the King James. That's just what I grew up with. Thus says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Jeremiah, just as one example of the prophets, dared not come with a mere word from men, but rather spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Also, this message was translated from one generation to the next generation, orally at first, but then was committed to writing. 
to ensure preservation. And boys and girls, we still do this. If, if you want to make sure. I mean, imagine that, that we, we were playing a game together. Let's say the game is basketball and, and we're playing pig. And I, and I, I make a statement and I say, I, I, I'll pay you $20 if you beat me in a game of pig. You may say, because you don't really know that I'm being serious, you may say, put that in writing. You want it in writing so that you can preserve my words. And after you beat me in the game of pig, you can come and you can say, Reverend Lubbers, this is what you said. See, we wrote it down. You said you would pay me $20. Now at a much, much, much more serious, solemn, spiritual level, the Word of God was not only orally communicated throughout the history of the generations of the covenantal people of Israel, but it was committed to writing. God, if we may say it with utmost respect, said, not only am I going to speak to you concerning the way of salvation, I'm going to put it down in writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to ensure preservation so that we, following the generational lines of our fathers and our grandfathers and our great-grandfathers, might have the same word of salvation that they had, and that we then might turn to our sons and daughters and our grandsons and our granddaughters. We can say, behold the word of the Lord. Here it is. God has spoken to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the human authorship of those who committed the Scriptures to writing. As we transition into our second point, let us just pause for this point of application. What a privilege we have. Every single one of us. That the God of heaven and earth has spoken to us and has given us His Word through the vehicle of inspiration. I trust that we do value the Word of God, but there also is this point of application that we ought to continue to value the Word of God. And there is no greater way to show our appreciation to the Word of God than by faithful and diligent use of the Word of God. So there is this question for reflection as we ask, do we read the Word of God diligently? Seriously? Do we study the Word of God? We ask the question and we leave it up to you and to myself also to ponder the answer. And we then transition into our second point, the need for inspiration. Why is there this need for inspiration? Again, we would unfold this point with two sub-points. There is a need for inspiration for our salvation and given common attacks. So, Oftentimes, and it's a good practice, oftentimes people memorize 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, but notice the verse that precedes it. Paul is speaking to Timothy as Paul is about ready to depart this earthly pilgrimage as he hands the baton of the Christian ministry off to the younger Timothy. And as Timothy will have to minister the Word of God in the context of perilous times, this, you might say, is the final charge Paul gives to Timothy. You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able. They, they, they have the power. They have the ability. And, and now here's the remarkable thing. They are able. They have the power and the ability to make you wise, Timothy. Not just wise in the sense that you'll know the best investment 
portfolio strategy. Or you'll know the best land to purchase. Or, or the best crop to plant. But make you wise unto salvation. That's the need for inspiration for our very salvation. Able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And this is what the Word is able to do. And this is what the Word alone is able to do. Now there are many powerful things in the realm of creation which testify, as we considered in previous weeks, to the deity of uh, the Creator and of His power. You can think of the mighty roar of the ocean waves. You can think perhaps of the magnificent explosion of a volcano. And no doubt there are powerful animals in the brute realm of creation. Uh, You can look upon a, a lion and see power there. But the most powerful thing, if we can call it a thing with utmost respect, the most powerful thing is the Word of God. It alone is able to make a person wise unto salvation. And this is why it is so distressing when you find churches that are tempted to replace the Word of God with something else. It'd be like removing from the battlefield, if we go back to the analogy, it'd be like removing the heavy artillery and putting pea shooters out there on the front line and saying, no, 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 we don't want our big guns out there defending the faith. Let's put out you know, the new recruits and give them small ammunition. Give them small caliber rifles. While no commanding officer would ever think of doing such a thing. So why would we ever be tempted to remove the Word of God from its central place within the life of the church and the life of the Christian? Paul doesn't say to Timothy, now Timothy, there's going to be perilous times. You're going to have to be very innovative. And you're going to have to really study to come up with new techniques and new gimmicks. You know, the world's going to change, Timothy. And you're going to have to adapt your style. He says none of that. Timothy, Christian, Christian church, remember the Scriptures that are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. May we also, in our own personal lives and in our family life and in our congregational life and by extension in the life of our federation and to the church wherever she finds herself manifested in purity, may we have this unshakable conviction that God gave us the inspired Scriptures and they are able to make us wise unto salvation. I notice also this point of application. The Scripture is able to make people wise unto salvation by the transformation of a heart from unbelief to faith. And so you may look upon the world and may say, all hope is lost. Well, Timothy, respectfully speaking, could have said the same thing. If you imagine Paul writing to Timothy, Timothy could have objected, uh, example, at the end of verse 7 and said, well, then the Gospel ministry is hopeless. Timothy could have written back to Paul and said, well, if this is the way men are going to be, what hope does the Christian church have? Well, the answer is in verse 15. That the Scriptures, because they're inspired by 
the Holy Spirit, and because they are the very words of God, are able to transform persons who are lovers of themselves, who are unthankful, who are by nature despisers of God. And as the Holy Spirit sends forth the proclamation of the Word of God, hearts are changed, persons are changed. And that is the hope for the Christian minister and for the Christian ministry and for the Christian church. In no way do we begin to think that we in ourselves have the ability to change people. And I trust that we as a congregation understand we do not have the power to change people. We don't have the power to change uh, the heart of of an infant child to bring them from spiritual death to spiritual life. But we do not despair because we know that God does have that power and exercises that power through the means of the Word of God. Notice also that this need for inspiration flows out of the great care that God has for our salvation. Now, echoing the statement that we've been referring to in 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, you notice that Guido de Bray writes, And the Reformed Church professes afterwards, that is after uh, the utterances of the holy men of God who were filled with the Holy Spirit, afterwards our God, because of the special care He has for us and our salvation. I just want to pause there and point out by way of reminder, certainly God cares for all aspects of His created realm. Nothing continues to be sustained without His power and His providential care, but God has a special care. Yes, as the wonderful hymn goes, His eye is on the sparrow. Picking up on the words of Jesus Christ that not a sparrow falls to the ground without the will of Father in Heaven, but God has, if we may say it this way, a special eye upon His Christian church and upon His elect, upon His children. And because of the special eye of electing love, God determined to have His words committed to writing through the vehicle of inspiration so that we might be able to open up our Bible and see what the Father has to say to us. Now the need for inspiration must be clearly understood and must be a core conviction that we have. This congregation, and we say this with every point of theology, but here especially it applies, this can never become a mere academic, intellectual point of data that we have stored away somewhere. Oh yeah, inspiration. We reject dynamic inspiration. We reject uh, mechanical inspiration. We believe in organic inspiration. We believe that the Holy Spirit gave every single word and all of the words to the human authors. Okay, yeah, I learned that in catechism. I'll put it on the shelf of my reformed theological framework. It has to be something more, if we may use the word experiential, something more real than that. Because of attacks. Because of attacks that continually come from unbelieving sources that seek to undermine and explain away eventually all of the supernatural aspects of the Gospel of salvation. Uh, This has happened all throughout history. More recently, although perhaps you might say really 1800s is recent, well, in the broad scope of human history, especially in the 1800s underneath the philosophical movement of the Enlightenment and so-called higher criticism, 
And the higher in that word is the arrogant boast of men, especially in leading academic institutions all throughout Europe, who place themselves and their own reason above the Scriptures and began to explain away the supernatural which they in their minds could not comprehend how it could have happened. And the irony is, is that the higher critics, because in their puny minds could not understand the operation of the supernatural, began to deny the supernatural. And congregation, I say it out of the burden of my heart, the moment you deny the reality of the supernatural, the Gospel is done for you. Now, you may hold on for a few years or a few decades. But think of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and now try to remove everything that is supernatural. Everything that is above the so-called laws of nature. And make your way through the Apostles' Creed. And what article of the Apostles' Creed is left standing if you deny the supernatural? I believe in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. That is supernatural. I believe in Jesus Christ. Two natures, one person. Mystically united together. That He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. There again is supernatural. That He suffered a substitutionary atoning death on the cross. That He was committed to the grave, but then rose again. Notice that the supernatural is woven all throughout the articles of the Christian faith. And that's why we say the moment you begin to allow the so-called higher critic to come and to begin to doubt and to deny the supernatural and begin with their arrogant hammers of intellectual pride to chip away at the bedrock of the biblical foundation, eventually you'll be left with absolutely nothing. And that's why you can go to Europe and you can look for the church. And yes, God still has His 7,000 knees that have not bent to Baal. But the church in Europe, by and large, is gone. Why? Persons began to doubt the inspiration of the Scriptures and therefore also the authority of the Scriptures. Today, in a more recent era, and Reverend Pontier mentioned this in a recent sermon, uh, we have especially what came in the 1960s with the liberal theologians and with the so-called new hermeneutic. And it really was nothing new. It was the hermeneutic of has God really said? And the emphasis then even in our own beloved institutions of higher learning, was, well, we need to take account for the scientific advances that we have. And for the insight that those scientific advancements can give us. And for the progress of social evolution. And we need now to apply those advances to the areas, perhaps, of the creation narrative. Or perhaps to certain moral areas. Especially in regards to human sexuality. And so why do we have the confusion in the church that we have? In large part, because of this lingering question that has echoed throughout all of history. Has God really said? But never fear. The Word of God abides forever. Man in all of his pretended glory is like the flower or the grass of the field flourishes in pretended brilliance one day and is washed away 
by the sweep of history the next day, but the Word of God abides forever. And that brings us to our third point to consider some of the implications of inspiration. I have to quote another Reformed writer, in view of the fact that all our knowledge of God and to salvation is derived from this Scripture, it is supremely important to know its character. And so we quickly point out these truths, these doctrines that flow out of, or you might say are built upon the inspiration of Scripture. Since we believe that the Bible is inspired by way of its own self-authenticating and self-attesting nature, no one else can prove the authority of the Bible more sufficiently than God Himself. That's what we mean when we say the Bible is self-attesting or self-authenticating. So if some critic comes and begins to question you and say, why do you believe that the Bible is inspired? Our simple answer is, well, the Bible itself declares that it is inspired. Now, an unbelieving critic may scoff at your answer, but don't be ashamed of your answer. How do you know a genuine $100 bill is a genuine $100 bill? It bears a watermark. Well, where is the watermark? It's on the $100 bill. You don't pull out a piece of worthless paper, you know, a college line or a wide-ruled paper that you can buy a whole pack of them for probably less than a dollar at Walmart. You don't take the $100 bill and put it back in your pocket and say, well, let me pull out this one-cent piece of paper and now try to prove to you the authentic nature of the $100 bill. You say, that's an authentic U.S.-issued $100 bill because it bears the watermark. At a much more solemn level, this is the inspired Word of God. How do you know? It bears the watermark of God's own testimony that it is the inspired Word of God. And therefore, it is inerrant because it is the Word of God. A God who is omniscient. A God who is perfectly wise. A God who is perfectly knowledgeable. It is inerrant. And that is that there are no mistakes nor errors within the Holy Bible in its original manuscripts. It's remarkable to me, and not that I'm that wise or, or that skillful of a reader, but you can take a, a book, a, a human-authored book, and it comes off the printing press, and it comes from a very well-known publishing house. And you pick it up in its first edition, you read and you're like, oh, there, there's a mistake, there's a typo in the manuscript. And hopefully subsequent editions fix the error. But in the original manuscripts, there was no such error. And not only do we believe, based upon the reality of inspiration, that we have an inerrant Bible, we believe that we have an infallible Bible, a, a Word from God that cannot err. And I always like to use this illustration, boys and girls, to help you understand the difference, although they're closely related, between inerrancy and infallibility. Uh, now, we used to play this game way, way, way back when I was in school. We called it around the room. They've probably gotten rid of it now. There's probably much better ways of learning. But when it came to mathematics, around the room, and I dreaded around the room, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. The way you played around the room, boys and girls, in math class was the teacher would hold up flashcards. Now you have one-to-one -one computer devices. Flashcards were just simply good old-fashioned cards with mathematical equations written on them. Two plus two equals four. And so student number one would stand next to student number two desk and the teacher would hold a flashcard. First kid who got the right answer moved on. It would go to student number three and another flashcard would come up. I never moved much. That's why I didn't like the game. It was embarrassing. But imagine you and I are playing around the world and two plus two comes up and I go, four! Well, so far, 
I'm inerrant. I haven't made any mistakes. Now, infallibility is this idea that I will never, ever make a mistake, that I am unable to make a mistake. And the Word of God congregation is both. It has no mistakes in it. And it can never be wrong. And so it is an authoritative Word upon which we build our doctrine and our life. Especially in relationship to its revelation of the one only way of salvation. And here's where it all comes together. Why is this such an important truth? Because it is the truth upon which we stake the salvation of our souls. Don't just give to me, as a needy sinner, some idea that you have imagined up in your own mind. I cannot take that to my deathbed. I cannot face the prospect of facing a holy and a righteous God with something some intellectual professor dreamt up in his spare time and is now presenting to me as the worldview that I ought to adopt. I need something more solid than that. I need something more authoritative, something more reliable. I dare not leave behind this life and enter into eternity on the basis of words of men. Because all men are liars. But thanks be to God that we have a word from God concerning the one way of salvation in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thanks be to God that we have the explanation of the benefits that come to all of those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The full and the free forgiveness of sins and the right to eternal life. So in conclusion, there again is a a command, a call for all of us to submit ourselves to the teachings of the Word of God, to the very Word of God that has been given to us by inspiration, knowing, and this is the point of examination for our week of preparation, knowing that the Bible, the Word of God, is able to make us wise unto salvation. But then don't ever forget those last phrases, through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Before our prayer of application, we actually want to invert the order and read the preparatory form first. And you can find that again in your forms and prayers booklet uh, that's in the pew rack. And you find the form dealing with the examination before the administration of the Lord's Supper on page 37. So we read together the institution of the Supper. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, let us give full attention to the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord as they are delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. 
Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That we may now celebrate the supper of the Lord to our comfort, it is necessary to examine ourselves fully and further to consider carefully what purpose the Lord Christ has ordained and instituted this sacrament, namely His remembrance. The true examination of ourselves consists of three parts. First, let everyone carefully consider their sins and ungodliness, that they may hate their sins and humble themselves before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that He, rather than leaving it unpunished, has punished it in His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Second, let everyone examine their heart to see whether they also believe the sure promise of God, that all their sins are forgiven only because of the passion and death of Jesus Christ, and that the complete righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given to them as their own. Indeed, so completely as if they had personally satisfied for all their sins and fulfilled all righteousness. Third, let everyone carefully examine their own conscience to see if they are fully determined to show true thankfulness to God in every area of life and to walk sincerely before His face and whether they with full sincerity strive to lay aside all enmity, hatred, and envy and earnestly resolve from this day forward to live with their neighbor in true love and unity. All those then who are of this mind, God will certainly receive in grace and count as worthy partakers of the table of His Son, Jesus Christ. On the contrary, those who do not sincerely believe this testimony in their hearts eat and drink judgment upon themselves. According to the command of Christ and the Apostle Paul, those who know themselves to be engaging in the following sins without repentance have no part in the kingdom of Christ and should therefore abstain from the coming to the table of the Lord. Idolaters, those who call upon deceased saints, angels, or any other creature, those who revere images, those who engage in witchcraft, fortune-telling, occult practices, or other forms of superstition, all those who despise God, His Word, and His holy sacraments, all blasphemers, those who seek to raise discord, factions, and dissension in the church or in the state, all perjurers, all who are disobedient to their parents and those in lawful authority, all murderers, contentious people, and those who live in hatred and envy against their neighbors, all adulterers, fornicators, drunkards, thieves, the greedy, robbers, gamblers, covetous people, and all who lead offensive lives. All those who continue in such sins shall abstain from the Lord's Supper so that they feel the weight of God's judgment and condemnation. But this warning is not intended to discourage those believers with contrite hearts as if no one might come to the Lord's Supper unless they are without sin. We do not come to the Supper to testify about our own perfection and righteousness, but on the contrary, we come seeking life in Jesus Christ apart from ourselves. We come confessing our misery, admitting that we have many shortcomings and that we do not have perfect faith. We also confess that we do not serve God with sufficient zeal, but that we must struggle daily with the weakness of our faith and struggle against the evil lust of our flesh. However, the grace of the Holy Spirit makes us sorry for our shortcomings, gives us the desire to live according to God's commandments, and helps us to fight against unbelief. 
Though sin or weakness that still remains in us against our will can prevent us from being received by God's grace and from being made worthy partakers of this heavenly food and drink. Let us then pray together. Our Father in heaven, first and foremost, we do thank you that you have given us a reliable word, your own word that is able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And we ask that through that word, we might exercise the discipline of self-examination. Not ending with a look within ourselves, but ending with a look, the look of faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our perfect righteousness. So we ask for much of your grace to be given to your people, especially in the week that lies ahead. We ask this for Jesus' sake and in his name.